Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. George Orwell. I always start every episode with that because I just feel like it epitomizes the climate that we live in every single day. And this week was no different. <laughs> it's um, every week I tell you it's something else. Um, uh, there's just so much in, in the last couple of days between the, the shutdown being over, Roger Stone getting arrested. Uh, there, It's just been it's been a lot. But uh, glad to see that the shutdown is over. Hallelujah. Thank God. It was a pretty extraordinary sequence of events last week that that led up to the shutdown finally coming to an end. Temporarily, though, it's only for three weeks. We could be here again. Hopefully not. But um, Donald Trump was absolutely outplayed by Nancy Pelosi. Never in my life thought that I would be happy to see a Nancy Pelosi speakership, but she has really been kicking Trump's ass up and down Pennsylvania Avenue since she took the gavel. And I got to give her credit. Um, She stuck to her guns, basically told Trump, no, you're not going to behave like a child and be rewarded for it. No, we're not going to give you what you want and give you a political win until you open the government back up. You cannot hold American people hostage like this, these federal workers, their families, federal contractors, you're putting people into financial ruin here because you're throwing a temper tantrum about a campaign promise that you knew good and hell damn well you could never keep. And Trump caved, flat out caved. So anyone who thinks otherwise, you're wrong. The spin on this has been pretty remarkable. Now, you had some people over on the right who freaked out and said that that was it. Donald Trump is a wimp. I think Ann Coulter made that comment. Well, she she made a despicable comment, not shocking, on Twitter saying that now George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush 41, is no longer the, the wimpiest president. He no longer has the title as the wimpiest president. First of all, how dare she? There was nothing wimpy about George H.W. Bush. He was a war hero. He was head of the CIA. Um, the read my lips comment and, you know, when he was when he was president, read my lips, no new taxes. And he ended up going back on that. That was a political mistake. That doesn't make him a wimp. So how dare she? But anyway, uh, you know, so you had people on the right who were pretty pissed off because they felt betrayed that Trump caved after he swore up and down he wouldn't. Not only did he not get a deal, even though he came out in the Rose Garden and claimed he had a deal, not only did he not get a deal, because when you have a deal, both sides get something. He got, as we say in Italian, Ugatzangul, nothing. He got nothing. So he didn't get money for his wall. He didn't get money for anything. He got three weeks of the getting the government back open, which is basically what was offered to him a month ago. The entire shutdown was for nothing. He put all these people through nothing. All of this consternation, hardship, all of this stress and drama, putting the American, you know, national security at risk, air traffic controllers, border patrol, FBI investigations. I mean, Secret Service, like all these people paid this price because Donald Trump sucks as a negotiator. 
He is terrible. The whole art of the deal and all of that is was a bunch of marketing bullshit, just like everything else. He can't freaking negotiate. He's terrible. Even Tony Schwartz, who was the the co-author of The Art of the Deal, he was like, you know, I kind of regret that I was a part of that fraud because this guy sucks as a negotiator. I'm paraphrasing, but he's expressed regret for it. He convinced Donald Trump convinced people, well, some people, a lot of people that he was this, you know, amazing deal maker because he kept repeating that that was the false facade that he created all these years and he is terrible and if anyone has any question about that anymore just look at how he handled the shutdown that's all i have to say about that donald trump you got owned by nancy pelosi you caved and you got nothing and i love it because (laughs) he was up against a powerful woman i have my differences with nancy pelosi i'm not like you know all of a sudden now a Democrat on on that side, but I do respect her political prowess and she is a formidable opponent. And she demonstrated why she is again, speaker of the house. She handled him and good for her because in this time, you know what? It was the right thing to do. No, you're not getting a state of the union. No, you're, we're not going to do this until you open the government and we negotiate like adults not using real American lives, jobs, safety, national security. We're not putting those things at risk. No, that's not how it works here. So good for her. We'll see what happens in a couple of weeks. Uh, We'll just be monitoring those negotiations. I mean, did anybody else, did anybody watch Trump coming out? He got in the Rose Garden trying to claim that there was some kind of victory I guess I I don't know like he's supposed to get a cookie for agreeing to let the government open back up again no you don't get a cookie for that and there were applause there were people I guess they were staff in the White House that were there staged you didn't get to see them they were off camera but you heard the fucking applause I when I was watching this I was like who the hell is applauding what is going on here people were about to miss their second paychecks which they have because the federal workers have not gotten paid yet they're going to get their back money. Like my, like I've mentioned throughout this whole thing that my husband is one of those people, in, you know, as, as under DHS as a federal law enforcement officer who had to work without pay for two paychecks for a month. They're going to get their back pay. Federal contractors, they are not as of right now. It's a little bit more complicated and it's really unfair to them. And all the small businesses that lost money from lack of, you know, re- revenue from people not spending money there. But anyway, but there was applause. I was like, what is this? What are they applauding? I mean, it's so staged reality show. Like, I just can't with this with this guy and these people that enable it. Despicable. Despicable. So some people are trying on the right, trying to say, oh, you know, he's a, he's a good man. He had to do the right thing. Get the fuck out of here. He is not a good man. There's nothing that good man and Donald Trump do not belong in the same sentence ever, ever. He's a charlatan. So, but we'll see what happens in three weeks that there's some kind of deal. There's talk of a DACA swap. There's talk of, um, you know, different aspects. I, I mean, um, I mean, immigration needs to get resolved, but it's, it's, it's complicated. And I don't know that Trump is equipped 
to do it. We've seen already the mess we've gotten in already. So, so that's the bat. That's it about the shutdown for now. I mean, we've lost billions of dollars. People in the Midwest, farmers were, were hurting. I mean, it, it was a real disaster. Republican senators were sniping at each other during the weekly um, lunch meeting with Mitch McConnell. It was reported that Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin was like, this is all your fault, yelling at McConnell. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that luncheon. So I saw the signs of, of the coalition over there tr- starting to crack a little bit. And I was glad to see this damn thing come to an end last Friday. But coming up, um, we're going to talk a little bit later besides uh, the the shutdown stuff, which I already addressed. But Asha Rangappa is going to be my guest this week. She was on back in September. We talked about the Brett Kavanaugh situation, but Asha is really cool. I love her. She's a professor, a law professor at uh, Yale. She was a former FBI agent. She's also a CNN national security analyst, and she's just a lot of fun and smart as a whip. And I, with everything going on, I just wanted to have her on. So it's kind of been a running theme the last couple of weeks, just based on the news cycle. I had Juliet Kayam come on, national security, DHS, a former official. And last week we had Josh Campbell, former FBI agent, former assistant to Comey. Um, he, he's another one. I just adore him. I think he's amazing. He's super smart and um, breaks things down in a really relatable way. And now this week, Asha. So stay tuned for that. We're going to talk about Roger Stone, his arrest, what it means, uh, the tactics of the used by the FBI, since that was something that was out there in the sphere where Roger Stone apologists were trying to trying to criticize the Mueller investigation, the FBI for how they arrested him. So we're going to get into into some of that in a little bit. But um, before that, did anybody else watch the show? It was a CNN documentary called Three Identical Strangers. It was about these triplets who were separated at birth and discovered at 19 that they had siblings. They didn't know. They were adopted and one of them um, was going to college in upstate New York and people were talking to him and recognized him and it, they thought he was his twin brother. He had no idea at the time he had a twin brother. Not only did he have a twin brother, he had a triplet brother. And the documentary is all about what happened. And this uh, was back in 1980. So... Some of our parents probably remember this because it became a big thing. It was like this huge national story. They were all over the talk show circuits and the news and all that back then. Because it was pretty remarkable that they discovered each other. And then the um, the story takes kind of a, a really interesting turn. And you find out what happened and uh, why they were separated at birth and adopted out and no one was told you got to watch the documentary. It was produced by CNN. And I've got to tell you, I'm not just saying this because I am part of the CNN team, but our documentary filmmaking uh, um, arm, they've been cranking out really amazing um, documentaries and series and things like kudos to, to the CNN documentary team. This was another one that was just phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, 
we were behind the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, RBG documentary also. And uh, so I'm very proud of, of CNN's work on this. But this particular, and the reason why I'm taking some time to talk about this, this documentary hit uh, particularly close for me because my husband is a triplet. He too was also adopted. Now he wasn't separated from his brothers at birth, but my husband has a pretty intense story about um, how he ended up in foster care and in an orphanage, him and his brothers, and eventually adopted by a family member. But he, it's a pretty harrowing story for him, and um, he's so remarkable that he was able to overcome a lot of those things and the trauma of that and become the man that he is and to become a federal law enforcement officer and have a career and be a loving, amazing husband. Um, so I am, I am fascinated by my husband and I, I just love and adore him. And, and I actually, when I give speeches, when I give keynote speeches, I often incorporate my husband's story into it because it's so inspirational and amazing. Um, but this, this, uh, I'm not going to tell that story today in detail. You have to come to one of my speeches. <laughs> I'm not going to give it all away. But, uh, this, this documentary, I, I said, hun, we got to watch this. He's like, yeah, I saw the, I saw the coming attractions. Let's check it out. So we watched it together and I've got to tell you, I was intrigued by his reaction and we started talking and I'm, I'm fascinated by human interaction and, and how people respond to trauma and how they respond to adversity. And I just find it to be um, very informative as we go through life. You know, everybody has a story. And it fascinates me what, what influences some people to do some things or make decisions they make in their lives. I'm, I'm just I'm fascinated by all of it. So watching this with my husband... I asked him the next day, you know, well, what stood out to you? Did you see any similarities? You know, how did it, and it was really, it really illuminating to listen to him talk about some of this. And as a triplet, um, my husband was the oldest. He's the first, he was the first to come out. <laughs> and so he said that he always felt the need to be protective of his brothers and I thought that was interesting because he ended up in law enforcement. Um, but some of the things that he could relate to in this documentary, like when these brothers uh, discovered themselves at 19, they, it there was a lot of fanfare around this and there was some consternation by their adopted parents. They were pissed off at the, at the adoption agency for not telling them that they had siblings and you have to watch the documentary to find out why. But they were really upset about it. And, and but, the, but the boys, they didn't care. They were just happy to be with each other. Now they were separated at six months old. And um, in the documentary talks about some of the residual effects of that separation. My husband and his brothers, they were separated at 11 but they were abandoned by their mother. She was young, had them very young. Um, she had the triplet boys and then had another son. So there were four of them, the triplets, and then another son about a year later. So she had four of them and she just abandoned them. She walked away from them one day in, in daycare and never came back. 
and a family member they ended up in foster care and and that was a horrible situation and then they they ended up at an orphanage and his father wasn't around and his father's sister actually um and his grandmother they were like where are the boys and discovered that they were actually at this orphanage and to make a long story short his aunt ended up god bless her aunt berta and uncle tim they took took the four boys in the triplets plus the younger brother took them in and adopted them when they were, I think five and she already had three kids. So she was a saint. This was in Brooklyn, New York, by the way. So my husband grew up with his brothers. They were not separated until they were 11 and circumstances changed and him and his twin brother. So my husband, though in the documentary, the triplets were identical. My husband's situation, he has an identical twin and the third one was fraternal. Very rare. That is so rare. So his twin brother, him and his twin brother, they got shipped off to Washington, D.C. to live with another aunt and her family at 11. And that was so traumatic for my brother. I mean, for my husband, because he was the first time now separated from his brothers. So they had been through all of that stuff together and now they're separated and they didn't really have interaction with each other except during like major holidays, Thanksgiving or Christmas. That's it. For years. And. So my husband said that he could, uh, he could relate to, he could relate to the, that, that feeling of, um, just the idea of like, I just, it was just me and my brothers. Cause that's how they survived a lot of the trauma when they were young. Um, he also said that he could on, he could understand the fact that they sometimes felt like they were, uh, um, on display all the time. Look at the triplets, look at the triplets and how that would, impact their individual identity you know we all have we're we're different you know we don't always have to be on display and he said he could relate to that feeling from the documentary which I thought was interesting and um yeah it was uh he just the 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 bubble of being with his brothers and 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 that importance like people don't realize how important those relationships are and I think this documentary really shone, really just shined a light on um, that, you know, you got to watch it. I just encourage everyone to watch it. But yeah, I was fascinated watching with my husband and getting kind of his insight and his ability to relate um, and how he could he could tell because there is a part where the emotional toll of the separation of the brothers and kind of after they got together, um, they started to, things started to change a little bit. And and my husband picked out right away, which one was struggling the most because he could see it. He could recognize the signs. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. So anyway, so, um, check out the three identical strangers. It's on, I think it's on Netflix or Amazon also, if it's not on, you know, if you can't catch it on demand on CNN or something, but very fascinating, very fascinating. Um, so other than that, what else, what else? Oh, so Roger Stone, kind of a hard turn, hard turn. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this before I bring in Asha and my interview and chat with her little little background on what's going on here with with Roger Stone you know this guy is just one of 
many cast of characters who are just low life, low life charlatan, just lying, manipulative grifters that Donald Trump has surrounded himself with. But the difference between Roger Stone and a lot of these other people is that he's had a 40 year plus relationship with Donald Trump. They've known each other since the 70s. When Donald Trump was flirting with the idea of running for president in 2000, it was Roger Stone he called to be his political consultant. These people have known each other for decades. He's not a coffee boy. Donald Trump cannot dismiss this relationship as just being some flippant relationship. No, they know each other intimately. So Roger Stone has been around since the 70s. Many people may have have heard of him. He's very he's a notorious character who kind of slithered around in the underbelly of the uglier side of political operatives. And he played a role small in the Nixon campaign. And he's like weirdly obsessed with Richard Nixon. He has a freaking Nixon tattoo um, on his back of Nixon's face. Like, you know, the guy, it's weird. And um, yeah, he worked on a bunch of, of different Republican campaigns and things over the years, including Reagan. Um, uh, he worked for Bob Dole and, and a bunch of people. He's, he's been kind of slithering around Republican circles for a long time. He also had a political consulting partnership with Paul Manafort back in the 80s. So they know each other also. Yes, the same Paul Manafort, who will be going to prison for the rest of his life. Um, for financial crimes and lying to the special counsel and, you know, passing poll, polling information over to Russians or Ukrainians who were in bed with the Kremlin. And yeah, that Paul Manafort. Also, by the way, the Trump administration lifted sanctions on Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, who is the same guy that Paul Manafort owed millions of dollars to and worked for. And that's who he's passing off information um, concerning the election to. Yeah, that's an aside. Um, But anyway, so Ryder Stone has been his had his grubby hands and things for a long time, including with Donald Trump. Okay, he was like his right hand guy. And when Donald Trump first decided to run for president this last time, Stone was on the campaign until he bumped heads with Corey Lewandowski in 2015 and he left the campaign. Some say he was fired. Some say he left, but he never really left the campaign. He might not have been on the books, but he was still all up in it. He could talk to Trump whenever he wanted to, was intimately involved in lots of things. And here we come to what's going on now and the indictment and what he was arrested for. WikiLeaks. Roger Stone was in contact with WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks was the vehicle by which the stolen DNC emails and Hillary Clinton campaign emails were released during 2016. WikiLeaks was working with Russian intelligence operatives who stole that information. They hacked in, they stole it, they used WikiLeaks as the third party entity to release that information. Now, I think it's really important for people to understand the timeline here. Because when we talk about Russian collusion and Trump continues to tweet hysterically, no collusion, witch hunt, look over here, we have nothing to do with it. 
there were so many people around him that continue to get to who are caught lying about Russia. Why? 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 There's been 37 indictments. Robert Mueller has indicted 37 people, Americans and Russians, since this investigation started in 2017. This is not a witch hunt. And I came across an amazing timeline that breaks this all down in the con- in the context of the, the latest Roger Stone involvement in this um, that I want to share. And it comes from a law professor. Her name is Jennifer Taub. And if anything, if you want to go back and read it, you miss anything I've said, you can follow her on Twitter. It's at at Jen Taub, T-A-U-B. She's a law professor, but she's a financial crimes, white collar crime expert, Harvard law grad, super smart. And I follow her and on Twitter and she really broke this down in a way that puts it all in context and why I just, just, just see where, how this all plays out. And so bear with me, I'm going to go through this timeline. If you want to know kind of because there's so much information constantly being thrown at us but here's the here's why it all matters in this timeline I'm just going to go through it briefly so beginning in March of 2016 is when the Russian government officials hacked into the computers of the Clinton campaign and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee also known as the DCCC and the Democratic National Committee they stole emails from them and documents and things like that That's according to an indictment that the Mueller special counsel team released in July of last year. So a lot of what I'm telling you has derived from either court filings, this, the, the indictment of the Russian operatives, intelligence operatives in absentia, obviously they're not here in the U S they're in Russia. Um, and from the, from the recent Roger Stone indictment that we just found out last Friday. So that was in March of 2016. The Russians hacked into these Democratic computers. Now, in between that time, in April of 2016, that's when George Papadopoulos, remember that guy? Yeah, he was also convicted and went to prison already, served his time for lying to investigators about contacts with Russians. George Papadopoulos was approached by this professor who was also working with the Russians, telling him, hey, look, you know, the Russians have some good dirt on Hillary Clinton. So Papadopoulos went back to the campaign and was like, hey, I'm hearing over here in Europe that there's the Russians have dirt on Hillary Clinton. And he was bragging in drunk in a bar in London to an Australian diplomat about how all oh, the Russians have reached out and they've got dirt on Hillary Clinton. What? Everybody knows Russia is not a, not, not a friend, they're an enemy. So the Australian diplomat went to his colleagues, American colleagues, and said, um, y'all might want to know about this. And then, you know, it, it's turned into a, a bigger investigation. But the FBI and our intelligence community, they were already kind of on to what Russia was doing because we have people that are paying attention to these things. So, but that's kind of how this all started. Now, in May of 2016, the DNC and the DNCC they discovered that their systems had been hacked. Now, according to the Roger Stone indictment, um, that's when we know, 
So we know now in May of 2016, the DNC was on to something like, wait, something's going on here. All right, fast forward. June of 2016, June 3rd, this British publicist, Rob Goldstone, you might have heard this name before. He's the guy who sent the email to Donald Trump Jr. informing him of potential information originating with the Russian government, damaging information with Hillary. Now, the Goldstone email, he said that the, quote, campaign with some official, I can provide the campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Clinton and would be very useful to your father. That in response to that, Donald Trump Jr. said, if it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Now, Goldstone wrote in that email, he said, this is obviously very high level and sensitive information, but as part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump, helped along by Aris and Amin. Aris and Amin, uh, 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 um, I can't pronounce their last names. The uh, Aguilarovs, that's it. <laughs> Aguilarov. Aris and Amin Aguilarov. I had to brain fart for a second. Um, Aris was a is a wealthy, wealthy Russian kind of real estate guy. And Amin was his um, son who's trying to be some pop star in Russia. He's kind of sucks. But anyway, so they got to know Trump when Trump was still trying to build a tower in, in, in Moscow. And when he came there for Miss Universe, um, the Aguilarovs were kind of a um, intermediary with with Putin and his people. So they have a relationship so this was in June of 2016, in the middle of the campaign. Now, Rod, uh, Donald Trump Jr., on the same day, that day in June, he sent a, a, a reply to Goldstone in which he wrote, um, oh, like I said, if it's what you say, I love it. And um, so then he said, can I call you first thing next week when I'm back? June 7th, 2016. According to news reports, Trump went out there and I remember this. He said, I'm going to give a major speech on probably Monday of next week. And we're going to be discussing all of the things that have taken place with the Clintons. So we are, he was kind of pre- previewing that, that he, allegedly he was going to give this whole layout, this whole case about you know how awful Hillary Clinton is. Now this was the day after a couple days after Donald Trump had this junior had this exchange with Rob Goldstone expecting to get some dirt from the Russians on Hillary. Coincidence? I don't know. Well, coincidentally, Trump never gave that speech. Why? Well, on June 9th, 2016, that was the famous meeting at Trump Tower, where we know that there were three members of the Trump campaign there. It was Kushner, Don Jr., Paul Manafort. And they met with that Kremlin-linked Russian lawyer, Natalia Vetselnaskaya, who claimed that it was supposed to only be about uh, Russian adoptions. She wasn't the only one. There were a couple other people at this meeting. I will spare you the Russian names, but they were all shady characters with ties to the Kremlin. So the official word out of this was, Oh, it was only 20 or 30, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. We were in and out. Nothing of substance was discussed. So it was nothing. But let's not forget that the New York Times exposed this meeting. We didn't know about this Trump Tower meeting at the time in 2016. We didn't know until a year later when the New York Times exposed it. And Donald Trump crafted the bullshit statement claiming that it was just about adoptions. 
helping out his son, Donald Trump Jr., because Trump wasn't at this meeting. And with the answer, we still don't know whether he knew about the meeting. Of course, I believe he did. But we don't have the proof yet that he knew. I mean, Donald Trump Jr. doesn't wipe his ass without his father telling him he can. So it really strains credulity that he didn't tell him about this. Remember, he made the speech. Oh, I'm going to give a speech next week. Come on. Where'd he get that from? But we don't have the smoking gun yet. Even though we do know that Donald Trump Jr. made a phone call to an un, um, an unknown number after this meeting. The assumption is that unknown number was to his father, but we don't know yet. Um, so after that, you know, Trump for, I mean, so remember, so when this story first came out, Donald Trump, they helped craft this bullshit statement that it was just about Russian adoption. And then we found that fell apart real quick and we found out, no, it wasn't. Now on the same day on June 9th, 2016, the meeting was scheduled for four o'clock and it, like I said, only lasted like 20 minutes at 440. That day, Donald Trump tweeted at Hillary Clinton, how long did it take your staff of 823 people to think that up? And where are your 33,000 emails that you deleted? Coincidence? I don't know. Now, in June of 2016, according to the indictment by uh, by Mueller, in response to the announcement of the hack, when the DNC, you know, we found out about the hack, the conspirators created this online persona called Guccifer 2.0. And they falsely claimed to be a lone Romanian hacker, hacker to undermine the allegations of Russian responsibility for the hacks. So the Russian hackers, they created this Guccifer 2.0 identity to try to use that as, as the, the way to release this information. Well, fast forward. WikiLeaks sent a private message to Guccifer 2.0 and said, listen, any new material stolen from the DNC, here for, send it here for us to review, and it will have a much higher impact than what you're doing. So WikiLeaks is in cahoots now with this Guccifer. Guccifer 2.0 is the front for Russian hackers. And they're saying, hey, bring us the information you've got because we have a bigger platform. We know how to release this stuff. Bring it to us. That was on June 22nd of 2016. July 6th, WikiLeaks added that if you have anything Hillary related, we want it in the next two days, preferably because the DNC, that was the convention, is approaching and she will then solidify Bernie supporters behind her after that. Same day, the Russian conspirators responded, okay, I see. And then they explained we think Trump only has a 25% chance of winning against Hillary. So conflict between Bernie and Hillary is interesting. So here they're trying to sow seeds a division between Hillary and Bernie. This is the Russian hackers and WikiLeaks. July 14th, 2016, after failed attempts to transfer the stolen documents starting in late June, on or about July 14th, the Russian hackers posing as Guccifer sent WikiLeaks an email with an attachment with a title and a link to where they could find the treasure trove of information they stole. The same day in July of 2016, the conspirators explained to WikiLeaks that the encrypted file contained instructions on how to access an online archive of stolen DNC documents. July 18th, WikiLeaks confirmed that it had one gigabyte, 
worth of information and that they would make a release of the stolen documents that week. July 22nd, 2016, WikiLeaks releases documents stolen from the DNC. July 23rd, 2016, Trump tweets about WikiLeaks, which he at the time called WikiLeaks for the first time. Leaked emails of DNC show plans to destroy Bernie Sanders, mock his heritage and much more online from WikiLeaks. Really vicious, rigged. That's what he tweeted. The same day, July 23rd, Trump tweets the WikiLeaks email released today was so bad to Sanders that it will make it impossible for Sanders to support her unless he's a fraud. Sowing division. Same thing that the Russian hackers were trying to do. July 23rd, 2016. After the July 22nd release of stolen DNC emails by WikiLeaks, a senior Trump campaign official was directed to contact Roger Stone about any additional releases and what other damaging information WikiLeaks had regarding the Clinton campaign. That is in the court filing just this past Friday concerning Roger Stone's indictment. That a senior Trump campaign official was directed to contact Stone about any additional releases and what other damaging information WikiLeaks had regarding the Clinton campaign. July 25th, 2016, Stone begins to correspond with associates about contacting WikiLeaks to obtain more dirt on Hillary Clinton. He said to Jerome Jerome Corsi, does that name sound familiar? Because he's been in the news too. He's under, he's under investigation by Mueller. He's in trouble. And he's been saying that he's willing to talk about what's going on. He turned on, on Stone, by the way. Jerome Corsi, get to Assange is what? Roger Stone says to him because Jerome Corsi apparently had um, an intermediate intermediary to get to Julian Assange, who runs WikiLeaks. Julian Assange has been holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for several years because he is basically a fugitive from his his uh, dalliances with Edward Snowden who betrayed this country and stole, he was a contractor for the NSA, stole information and released it through WikiLeaks, exposing um, our government secrets on surveillance and things like that. Yeah, there's been a big debate about whether he's a traitor or a patriot. Um, I think he's a traitor, but that's for another day. Same day, oh, also Jerome, I think, um, I'm sorry, Julian Assange was uh, accused of of sexual assault of a a minor, I believe. that's another reason why he was a fugitive. But anyway, so he's still holed up in, in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Roger Stone to Jerome Corsi, get Assange at Ecuadorian embassy in London and get the pending WikiLeaks emails. They deal with the Clinton Foundation, allegedly. Same day, Jerome Corsi forwarded Stone's email to an associate who lived in London and was a supporter of the Trump campaign. July 26th, Trump tweets, In order to try and deflect the horror and stupidity of the WikiLeaks disaster, the Dems said maybe it's Russia dealing with Trump. Crazy. So here you already have them laying the foundation that it's the Clintons and the the Democrats who are in bed with the Russians, not me. Deflect, deflect, deflect. That was July 2016. July 27th, candidate Donald Trump gave a speech during which he said, Russia, if you're listening. I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Remember that? I remember that. 
because we were all horrified that a presidential candidate was actually calling on a foreign adversary to hack into a political uh, opponent's campaign or whatever to get her emails. What the fuck? Yeah, that's what everybody thought that day. I remember because I was on CNN in reaction to it. July 27th, 2016, Trump tweeted the following. If Russia or any other country or person has Hillary Clinton's 33,000 illegally deleted emails, perhaps they should share them with the FBI. So he codified that now in a Twitter. It was bad enough he said it in a speech. Now it's on Twitter. July 27th, same day that as the Russia Are You Listening speech, same day as the tweet, the Russian conspirators attempted after hours to spearfish for the first time email accounts at a domain hosted by a third party provider and used by Hillary Clinton's personal office. Same day at or around the same time, they also targeted 76 email addresses at the domain for the Clinton campaign. This is in one of the Mueller indictments. These are official court filings, folks. This is what the Mueller investigation knows as fact. Same day, at or around the same time, they also targeted 76 email addresses at the domain for the Clinton campaign. Oh, I already said that. Okay. July 31st, Roger Stone emails Jerome Corsi with the subject line, call me on Monday. The body of the email read in part that Corsi's associate in England should go and see Julian Assange. Early August 2016, Stone is already publicly and privately stating that he's been in communication with WikiLeaks. Now, I remember this because I was on Real Time with Bill Maher that first week in August, and Roger Stone was the first guest. He was a guest by remote. I think it was either Stone or Assange. And they were talking about this. It might have been Assange, I think, I'm sorry, that was on as a remote guest talking about this whole WikiLeaks thing. So I remember when this was going on. August 2nd, 2016, Jerome Corsi sent an email stating that he was currently in Europe and planned to return in August and that word from his friend in the embassy, that's Assange, that he plans two more email dumps, one shortly after he got back in August and a second one in October with the impact planned to be very damaging. It's what we call an October surprise. And if you all remember during the election, there was an October surprise. There were two, actually, big ones, one for Trump, one for Clinton. Getting there in a second. August 2nd, the phrase friends in the embassy. OK, we already know that. Um, time to let more than the Clinton campaign chairman be exposed as in bed with the enemy if they are not ready to drop HRC. So basically, Jerome Corsi is saying they need to try to get people in the campaign, expose their emails if they're not ready to drop the emails they have on Hillary. This is August 2nd of 2016. In that same email from Jerome Corsi to Roger Stone, that appears to be the game hackers are now about. Would not hurt to start suggesting that Hillary Clinton is old, her memory's bad, has stroke, neither he nor she is well. I expect that much of the next dump focus setting stage for foundation debacle. So now they're planting the seeds of how they're going to attack Hillary. That um, they, they want to, you know, she's old, she's, her memory's bad, she's, she's not in good health, you know. Remember those stories were coming out? Remember the National Enquirer stories? Claiming that Hillary was going to die in six months or whatever? National Enquirer in cahoots with, with Trump 
That's David Pecker, the one that catch and did the catch and kill stories with the with Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels. Yeah, I mean it's all so incestuous. It's 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 I can't hardly stand it. August eighth at a public event, Roger Stone said, "I actually have communicated with Assange." I believe the next batch of his documents pertain to the Clinton Foundation, but there's no telling what the October surprise may be. August 12th, during an interview, Roger Stone said he'd been in communication with Assange, but was not at liberty to discuss the information he had. This is all important because Roger Stone's defense has been that he didn't really, you know, he wasn't in cahoots with with WikiLeaks. Well, in my conversation with Asha Rangappa, you will hear why that is bullshit and why that matters. August 18th, during an interview, Stone said it had become known on this program that I have had some back channel communication with WikiLeaks and that he communicated with Assange and that they have a mutual acquaintance who is a fine gentleman. Again, Stone reaffirming his connection with Stone, I mean, with Assange. Now, on the same day, Randy Credico, this guy is a character and a half, this Credico, but you'll hear this name come up during the Roger Stone stuff. Uh, on the same day, Randy Credico sent a text message to Stone that said, I'm going to have Assange on my sh- on my radio show next Thursday. Um, I have Assange on Thursday, so I'm tied up. During the radio interview, Credico asked Stone, you've been in touch in- indirectly with Julian Assange, right? Can you give us any kind of insight? Is there an October surprise coming? In response to the question, Roger Stone said, well, first of all, I don't want to intimate in any way that I have control or influence over Julian Assange because I don't. We have a mutual friend, somebody we both trust, and therefore I am a recipient of pretty good information. August 25th, Credico text Stone, Assange talked about you last night. Stone asked what, what the head of WikiLeaks said. What did he say about me? Credico responded, he didn't say anything bad. We were talking about how the press is trying to make it look like you and he are in cahoots. Well, because they were. August 27th, Credico sends a text message to Stone. We are working on Assange on a Assange radio show and that Credico was in charge of the project. Credico added Assange has kryptonite on Hillary. Mid-August, WikiLeaks made a comment denying any contact with Stone. Stone later said the only contact he had with WikiLeaks was through their intermediary, through Credico. Now Stone continued to communicate with the campaign, with the Trump campaign about WikiLeaks and future releases. September, Stone texts Credico, I am emailing you a request to pass on to Julian. Credico responded, okay, and added later, just remember, don't use me as your connection to Assange. You had one before that that you referred to. The same day, Roger Stone emails Credico with a negative article attached about Hillary. Please ask Assange for any state or HRC emails, that's Hillary, from August 10th to August 30th, particularly on August 20th, 2011, that mention the subject of the article, or confirm this narrative. So Stone is all up in it, okay? All up in it. And there are several messages back and forth between him and this Randy Credico. Did you pass the message on to Assange? Credico's like, yeah, I did. And then they go on back and forth about this. Now, October 1st, 2016, Credico texts Roger Stone and says, big news coming Wednesday. Now pretend you don't know me. Hillary's campaign will die this week. In the days preceding this, the press had reported that Assange planned to make a public announcement on or about Tuesday of October 4th. This is 2016 now. We're in the last weeks of the campaign. October 2nd, Stone emails Credico, WTF, and linked to an article reporting that WikiLeaks was now canceling this highly anticipated announcement. I was like, what's this about? 
Credico says it was a head fake. Did Assange back off? Stone asks. And Credico says, I can't talk about it. And then he eventually says, I think it's still on for tomorrow. Same day. Off the record, Hillary and her people are doing a full court press to keep Assange from making the dump. That's all I can say about this. Leave my name out of it. October 3rd, Roger Stone says, wrote to a supporter involved with Trump campaign. Spoke to my friend in London last night. The payload is still coming. Same day, October 3rd, received an email from a reporter who had connections to a high-ranking Trump campaign official that asked, what does Julian Assange have? I hope it's good. Stone said, well, it is. I'd tell the high-ranking Trump campaign official, we don't know who this is, by the way, but he doesn't call me back. October 4th, Julian Assange holds, holds a press conference, doesn't release any new materials pertaining to the Clinton campaign. Shortly after that, on October 4th, Roger Stone received an email from the high-ranking Trump campaign official asking about the status of future releases by WikiLeaks. The big mystery in these campaign in these filings by Mueller is who the hell is the Trump campaign official? There were only but a handful at that point. Some people speculating it was Bannon. Some people speculating Rick Gates. Could have been Kushner, his Don Jr., Trump himself. We don't know. This we still don't know. Same day, Stone answered that Assange had a serious, serious security concern, but that he would release a payload every week going forward. Same day, Trump supporters text Stone and said if he had heard any more from London, Stone replied, yes. Want to talk on a secure line? Got WhatsApp? Stone subsequently told the supporter that more material would be released and that it would be very damaging to the Clinton campaign. October 7th, the Obama administration announces that it believes the Russian government hacked, stole, and released emails from the Democratic National Committee and others, and it said that they are intended to interfere with the U.S. election process. That was on Friday, October 7th, 2016. I remember this day fully because... That was the day that the Access Hollywood tape was released where Donald Trump brags about basically sexually assaulting women and said, when you're a star, you can, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. That was October 7th. That was the day I thought the campaign was over for sure for Trump. How wrong I was. Same day, WikiLeaks released the first set of emails stolen from the Clinton campaign. John Podesta's emails. Shortly after WikiLeaks release, an associate of uh, an associate of the high-ranking Trump campaign official sent a text message to Stone that read, "Well done." October seventh to November seventh, WikiLeaks released approximately thirty-three tranches of documents that had been stolen from the personal email account of the Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta, totaling over fifty thousand stolen documents so over the next month wikileaks did what they said they were going to do and kept releasing these emails on october 10th donald trump according to news accounts said this just came out wikileaks i love wikileaks sounds a whole hell of a lot like collusion to me i don't know what Mueller has what the final report's going to say but that timeline putting it all in context is pretty freaking damning in my opinion, I'm not a lawyer. I'm only bringing you the facts. And everything I read to you in that timeline came from Bob Mueller's investigation and court filings. 
couple of news stories, but most of the most damning information about Stone, the text messages, the communications, those that came from proof that Bob Mueller has already. That's just that part of it. Still a lot of unanswered questions. What was Trump's role in all of this? How much did he know? How much did Don Jr. know? There's really been nothing from Mueller about the actual Trump Tower meeting. Not yet, at least. A lot of questions still will be answered, but there is a treasure trove of information now about these interactions. And Roger Stone is right in the middle of all of it. So time to bring in Asha Rangappa so we can talk about the Stone arrest, what happened with the FBI, was it uh, overkill, the, the, the pre-dawn raid, and um, she's a perfect person to talk about this. So time to welcome my friend, former FBI agent Asha Rangappa. Well, I'm so pleased to bring back one of my favorite guests on Honestly Speaking with Tara, my fellow CNN colleague, uh, former FBI agent, Yale professor, and just all-around kick-ass chick, Asha Rangappa. Thank you for coming back and chatting with me. There's so much going on. I had to have you on. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So, Asha, in the last, like, (laughs) three weeks... (laughs) It has been extraordinary what's been going on with the Mueller investigation, Russia, people close to Donald Trump, collusion. I mean, it's hard to keep up from day to day. Tara, I'm exhausted. (laughs) You and me both, sister. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, seriously, you're, you're totally right. It's like it's mind boggling and it's like coming from all directions. Every day. Uh, every day. It's something else. Um, last week I had Josh Campbell on, who is also a colleague of ours at CNN, but also you both share that you were at the FBI, uh, not necessarily at the same time, but you were both FBI uh, agents. And um, I've just, and before that I had Juliet Kayyem, because I, I just felt it was so important for people to really understand the importance of the developments that are going on. And, mm-hmm. you know, last week it was Michael Cohen. This week now it's Roger Stone. And let me just preface this by saying that I think Roger Stone is one of the most despicable human beings. He is a disgusting, dirty, unscrupulous, self-appointed, dirty trickster who has been around, you know, slithering around the political world for 40 years. And he's one of Donald Trump's closest and oldest friends. And he was arrested on Friday. Explain to people why he was arrested. And also, I want to clear up this idea that there were some kind of Gestapo tactics used to arrest him in that early morning raid at his house in Florida. Because I know you have some things to say about that. Yes, I do. So Roger Stone was obstructed Uh, or sorry, was arrested for obstruction of justice, for lying to federal officials in in his congressional testimony. And uh, I'm trying to pull up, I thought I had it right up here right now. Um, His indictment, which is several pages. It's like- uh, It is several pages. And can you refresh my memory, Tara? The the last- um, Also, well- Charge was witness tampering. How can I forget? Witness tampering. (laughs) 
this is the thing. My brain is full. I can't keep it I all in here. I don't blame you because it's you know there's been so many people so close to the president it's that like, have been arrested or it? yeah. There's, which one know, is it? Ninety nine <laughs> charges now. You know, he's, keep right, right? He's yeah. one of thirty seven. So you know, what do you mean you don't remember it all, Asha? Come on. <laughs> yeah. So. So, okay, obstruction of justice, lying to Congress, and witness tampering. And, Tara, I would, okay, I will classify these as what are commonly called or referred to in our public conversation as process crimes. And they are called process crimes because they are crimes that interfere with the investigative or judicial process. Okay, so you're blocking the investigation from going through. You're telling lies so that, you know, Congress or, you know, in the case of other people, FBI agents can't get to the heart of the matter or evidence or you're bullying witnesses. And the narrative right now is these are just process crimes and they're trying to get Roger Stone because there was nothing else there. And this is kind of the there's no collusion. But let's look at what he was trying to obstruct or lie about or prevent other witnesses from testifying about. And what the underlying activities were, were his communications uh, through two people to WikiLeaks. Now, we have... Go, yeah, no, I was going to say, explain yeah, for it, some people who don't know, you know, what, what, yeah. why WikiLeaks? What's so bad about that? Isn't WikiLeaks the encyclopedia where you go and you look stuff up? No, that's Wikipedia. <laughs> that's Wikipedia. <laughs> this is not. It was not Wikipedia, folks. It's WikiLeaks. No, Julian Assange was, fame. Stuff on Wikipedia. Okay, so WikiLeaks. So I feel like we're in a choose-your-own-adventure book. Like we have to go back to right. you know one of the right. very first chapters. <laughs> So Mueller has already indicted 12 GRU Russian military intelligence officers for hacking into the DNC server and for stealing emails, which they then weaponized uh, and tried to and, and made public. Now, the entity which broke into the DNC server was called Guccifer 2.0. In that indictment, Guccifer 2.0 is coordinating with organization number one, which is WikiLeaks, in order to make sure that those emails are released at particular times in order to further their goal of, you know, influencing the election, harming Hillary Clinton, helping Donald Trump. So that's in a previous indictment. But right. it's important because you kind of need that context to also understand what why this is significant. So and it's significant that- and it's really significant because it goes to the heart of the the collusion accusation because throughout the campaign Donald Trump was talking about oh we love WikiLeaks. I love and WikiLeaks. I love yeah. WikiLeaks. And, you know, the timing, the timeline of all of this is important also, which is where Roger Stone comes in. Because if and people will remember, like during the Democratic um, convention, Trump had a press conference where he said, I hope the Russians are listening. Hillary's 30,000 emails that are deleted are out there somewhere. Why don't you go find them? And there was mm-hmm. an activity in Russian hacking at that on the same day. So there's a lot of coincidental uh, smoke around this and Roger Stone is right in the middle of it with the whole WikiLeaks thing and then of course John Podesta and his emails being released the same day 
that the pussy video, pussy grabbing video came out uh, in October the of Access 2000, Hollywood the Access tape. Hollywood tape. Yeah. So, and you know, Tara, as you're saying this, I mean, I just want to point out, because I don't think anybody has made this point. Like, Trump was like, I love WikiLeaks, <laughs> you know, release the emails. The guy doesn't use a computer. Right. That's right. Like, he literally does not use email. So it's a little strange that, like, why does he love WikiLeaks so yeah. much? Where did that come from? Internet. Yep. Where do you get that from? Who does put he that in his know brain? What an email is like he doesn't look at them. So I mean, I have to. Uh, the, the, he is getting this from somewhere, right? It's not his own experience, anyway. So we'll leave that to the side. That's <clears> actually <throat> a really good point that I think no, most I people don't realize. This, yes, this kind of interesting. Right. He doesn't even. That. He's not even well versed in email or electronic communication. Right. None of that. I mean, other than Twitter. Um, that's true. So who planted this idea in his brain? And I think the Roger Stone indictment is is giving us uh, shining a little light on right. how this all came about. So this indictment is all about uh, Mueller saying, here's how I know this person obstructed justice, lied and was witness tampering because I got the receipts. Mm-hmm. I got emails. I got text messages. I know what this guy was saying behind the scenes to these people um, whom he was, you know, coordinating with to be in communication with WikiLeaks about the content of the information that they were releasing. Importantly, at one point in this indictment, there is a very kind of explosive line, which is, and it's very oddly worded. It's It says, a senior camp, Trump campaign official was directed to contact Stone and find out more about, you know, what was happening with WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the, the direct wording in, in front of me. It's at paragraph 12. And the reason that it's oddly worded is it, what it means is that there was a senior campaign official who was directed, directed by, by whom? whom? Right. And who is hot? Like, who would be in a position to direct a senior campaign official? The other, if that official is already senior, right? Correct. So it narrows that, it down. It was either and, someone in the Trump family. Correct. Um, it, some people are saying that it couldn't have been Steve Bannon yet because he wasn't on the campaign at that time. Uh, who? Who? Who could it have been? I've heard speculation possibly Rick Gates who has also been charged and is cooperating with the Mueller investigation and also charged independently for other crimes that he committed along with Paul Manafort. Um, And had contacts with Russian intelligence himself. Correct. So it was possibly him. But there really aren't that many people who were that senior on the campaign to begin with at this point in time outside of Kushner, the uh, Trump kids, and Trump himself. Right. We need like a clue board game. We do. For this. <laughs> it was Kushner right. in, in Trump you know, Tower. In Starbucks with, <laughs> you know, with, with the cell phone. Right. Right. So, um, so but we don't know who that is, but that is referenced there. And it is uh, significant because, as you pointed out, Tara, Tara Roger Stone is intimately connected with this campaign and with Donald Trump. And what that particular statement makes clear is that Roger Stone's communications and attempts to reach out to WikiLeaks and and get information back was both known to and of interest to 
the members that were in the heart of the campaign. And they were also, in fact, actively pursuing, you know, kind of getting like finding out more. Um, so, you know, when we have this no collusion narrative, I mean, that is what collusion looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, collusion is a secret collaboration to try to achieve an objective. People have been saying it's not a crime. Exactly. It's a secret uh, or, you know, organized activity to try to achieve an objective. Now, if that objective is a crime, then that collusion becomes conspiracy. But from a national security perspective, it is still no less alarming that there was someone that intimate with the Trump campaign that was working with what the CIA calls the an intelligence, a non-state intelligence arm of the Russian government. That's, That's how they refer to. Yes, with- I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I was going to ask you that next. Like, why should people? feel as though WikiLeaks is problematic. It's because our intelligence community has identified WikiLeaks as a non-state actor of a foreign enemy of ours. They're not our friends. And they're not journalists. Correct. Like when, when you have um, an outlet that is producing information that is under the direction and control of a foreign power... We call that a foreign agent. And, you know, you can disagree with CNN or Fox or whatever. But, you know, I, I mean, as far as we know, these are people I mean, they, you can put out whatever you want and, and have your own opinions and biases. But if you literally have a foreign government directing you to put out certain kinds of information, to, to spin it in a certain way, and you are doing it in furtherance and knowing that you are furthering a hostile intelligence operation, um, you are no longer a legitimate journalistic outlet, I'm sorry to say. And that is an argument that Roger Stone and his cohorts are trying to make, that WikiLeaks is a media organization and that they're protect, therefore protected under First Amendment rights. And that's something that um, I'm assuming that Mueller's team is anticipating, which is why they've been so careful in how they're going about charging Roger Stone and um, and under what um, laws and statutes, because that could be Roger Stone's defense. Because if they were a media organization, I think that changes the, the dynamic a bit about why, whether it would be illegal or not or problematic or well, pose right. a national security threat. But that's what they're you trying know, to argue. You, that's his defense. If you're like coordinating with BBC, or like to right, them, or the New York like, Times, I mean, or that's you still know, not great. I right. don't think it would reflect well on BBC. And they, I mean, and by the way, this is completely hypothetical. But I'm using them because they are incredibly uh, well respected, um, you know, for their objectivity and good journalistic standards. So it would l- reflect badly on them. But you know, it's not the same as. Like it, it wouldn't be the same as colluding with a foreign power, right? Right. Like and it's also, just that you're kind of engaging in some sketchy things with, you know, to try to spin um, the news. Um, but this is, and it's also not Canada. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like this is Russia. Okay, they are our enemies. They hate us. <laughs> Correct. And they were engaged in an active intelligence, a covert intelligence operation. Correct. That's right. And and yes. probably still are um, yes. in some against way, shape or form. And against our democracy. Right. That's right. Um, 
So now that we have this part, and also there's this other, you know, this it, it's such a cast of characters. It, it's hard to imagine that th- this is it's real so life. Bizarre. Well, and I just want to add in, I mean, when, you know, he is lying about stuff um, that, by the way, like, flagrantly lying, like going in and telling Congress under oath that he didn't text with somebody. And then that same day he goes and, like, text with that person like right you know right. 50 I, times or i think that was like jerome that. corsi actually yes who so was another very, one like, it, it, it was kind of a case of blatant lying and then the witness tampering i mean you remember reading that part yes Tara, where he's like threatening um randy credico randy credico's dog yep and then you know quoting the godfather and you know he also told him prepare to die cucks- prepare cocksucker. to die yes which is actually a good entree into exactly. the next part, the next part of this circus, um, which is the criticism that's been going around by people claiming that the way in which Roger Stone was arrested on Friday was excessive. And for those who haven't seen it, CNN actually videoed the uh, arrest live and some people including the president have asked well how come cnn was there who tipped them off like as if it's some big conspiracy to get roger stone like he's some innocent lamb now the cnn side of it it was the hunch of a of a good producer that was paying on the on the Mueller team that we have you know we have people assigned specifically to the Mueller case and they watch the filings and what goes on at the courthouse and the grand jury and they got a hunch because they saw some activity that made them think that hmm this might be the week because Roger Stone's been you know uh, been in, in focus for quite some time this was something that was basically we knew inevitability this was going to drop yeah it was they knew just it was going to happen of when. right so that's yeah. why CNN was there but. Asha, as a former FBI agent and someone who is familiar with these tactics, is there merit to the people who claim that using 20 plus agents who were in full gear, knocking on the door saying, open up FBI, fully armed, was that an excessive, abnormal um, procedure for someone like Roger Stone who was charged with what they call only process crimes you brought that up before but to the fox news crowd and the trump people it's quote only process crimes like they're traffic misdemeanors but you've already cleared it up that process crimes are actually quite serious no this was not out of the ordinary and that is based both on my experience and what you know i know from other fbi agents now i was a counterintelligence agent so most of my cases did not end up in a court of law. But when you become an agent, you have to do certain things, um, you know, over the first two years, you have to get experience in, in a bunch of different things. And one of them is arrest. So, you know, I personally did two arrests, they were both white collar cases, both of them met the staging was like at 430 in the morning. And this is because it, this, you know, you want to get the person when a you know they're going to be home and typically at five or six in the morning they will be home mm-hmm. and you also you know people typically don't react well when they suddenly learn that they're under arrest so kind of getting them at this point where you know there is less likely to be some kind of altercation or they're going to try to flip you know all of the things that might happen if it's like at two o'clock in the afternoon right um it's it, it's for safety reasons now the other thing that was happening here is that there was also a search warrant that was executed and this is important because 
you know, I also was part of a team that executed a search warrant. And it was about, you know, there were like 20 agents. And that's because everybody has a particular place or person that they are assigned to kind of take care of or monitor. Um, you know, there could be other family members. You want to just make sure that you talk to them and say, this is what we're doing, you know, have them go into a room, make sure that, you know, they're fine there while the agents go to, you don't want people just like wandering around. You can't really do this with like two, two agents. If, right. if you are trying to seize items like computers or go through documents and all of that stuff. Um, not to trivialize it, but just to put it kind of in terms that people who aren't in this world might relate to like any any mafia movie the sopranos goodfellas when the feds come and bust down the door and they go they execute a search warrant and they didn't bust down the door in this case by the way they knocked it was not a no knock this uh, was not a no knock right which is that there's a difference but when they go in like in the scene in goodfellas when they go in and they execute the search warrant and karen runs upstairs and grabs the coke and and flushes it down the toilet and she takes the gun and hides it like the reason they have multiple agents is so that people they can secure all of the things that are important Correct. so that that doesn't happen so they That's don't right. destroy evidence so they can't hide things while one agent is doing one thing they have you have multiple people that kind of swarm on the situation to secure all the things that, that are important including people and evidence right and that's for exactly and that's for their safety it's for the agent's safety you know there's some person that's going to be assigned to the wife and to make sure that they find where she is let her know what's going on you know bring her somewhere where she can be there if she wants to be there with her children for example i mean you know and and you always treat people respectfully and it this isn't like some kind of uh, and i think even roger stone said afterwards that the fbi treated him very well you 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 understand that you know I, this is a very serious thing you're going into somebody's home and so right. you michael know, cohen you... said the same by the way when donald trump was go- rambling on tr- on twitter about how how awful the FBI was and how they, uh, you know, raided his his office and, you know, busted the door down and all that hyperbole. Michael Cohen himself actually said that they were very nice and none of that happened. So, you know, yeah, no, it they're not happen. Gestapo I mean, tactics. It's not Gestapo. You're there because you have a a job to do. Um, and everybody's job will be a little different. Um, and that's why you need that many people. Um, And then in terms of the gear, you know, Tara, I don't know what to say. Like when, you know, if we're going to be in a society where people can own guns in their homes, and I believe Roger Stone like has a lot of photos of like him holding guns. He does. I believe he owns guns. So you know that you're going into a home where there are weapons. You know, law enforcement are going to be the most likely to be looking down the wrong end of the barrel. Mm -hmm. And so they are going to wear bulletproof vests. They are going to have weapons. And especially if they know that the person in the home, you know, owns weapons, then that that is something they have to take into consideration. Because like I said, people, you know, they don't you never know how somebody's going to react. You don't know if he's going to flip out. You don't know if he's going to flip out and decide he's going to go out with a blaze of glory. Who the hell knows? These people are crazy. People go cuckoo. And, you know, and in this case, Tara, and this is where, you know, you mentioned the segue that that made it appropriate to start talking about this. He had threatened somebody. Yes. He told somebody to be prepared to die. He was going to take their dog or, you know, it was like your dog's going to go missing or whatever. I mean, 
you know, so I don't see how anybody, any supervisor putting together this, you know, and you put an ops plan together. It's not like you're just like, hey, let's do an arrest. You're like, right. go. I mean, this is something that is planned out. It's, um, you know, choreographed very carefully. Like I mentioned, there's a staging area where the agents all first go and then, you know, they have specific time that they're going to go over there. You have the lead agents who will do the knock that will uh, be calling, you know, saying FBI, open open the door. Um, this is just a very highly, like, you know, rigid situation. Like, you know, it, it there are very specific roles for everyone. And I can't see anyone who would be doing their job right if they thought it was okay for agents to go in there you know, not in their normal gear, like not right, not wearing, know, not wearing yeah, trench coats and briefcases. Okay, or like low shirts. You know what I mean? Right. Like, go for golf. I mean, no, that's not what it is. It's an arrest and it's a search warrant. Well, it, so, it really um, bothers me that um, so many folks who claim that they're pro law enforcement, including this president and his minions and sycophants over at Fox News, watching the coverage of this, watching people who were the first to chant locker up and, you know, wanted Hillary yeah. to be, you know, uh, perp walked in shackles and everything else for a quote process crime, uh, going, uh, going on and on trying to make Roger Stone into some martyr. Like he was some old man who was infirm, like in a wheelchair and how dare they scare him. He, in his pajamas and his glasses, this guy, he was no flight risk. How could they do this? And I'm like, are you people serious? Have you ever listened to Roger Stone? Have you ever listened to the garbage that he says, the, the threats that he makes, the pictures that he posts, the horrible conspiracy theories that he pushes? I mean, this is a despicable human being who made threats against people's lives and yet they're trying to make him into some kind of innocent martyr. Give me a with break. Trying to conceal evidence and get people to change their testimony. That's I correct. mean, I think it is fair for the FBI to believe that with any advance notice, he might destroy evidence. Right. Which they, they did the same to, to That's right. They did the same thing to Paul Manafort. Exactly. Because of, for the exact so, same reasons. I mean, I'm not, I don't really understand what the. I mean, I, I, I'm sure it's not actually based in a good faith. It's you know? not. <laughs> as much as we want to give people the benefit of the doubt in, with some yeah. of these people, it's not. It is just pure um, propaganda. There. It's self-preservation because they want to keep Trump in power because it's made some people who were never relevant before relevant now. And it's insane. And it's at the expense of our justice system, our good men and women of the FBI and the intelligence community being slandered every day by these people and the president himself. It's um it's very infuriating for someone like me. I'm sure it is for you being in that in that world and that being your career at one point and those being your colleagues watching this take place. And that kind of leads me to the the next segment, which is Roger Stone is actually out on bail. He will be before a judge, I think, today, actually. It's Tuesday, so he's supposed to be in front of a judge in the DC area. Um he went on a media blitz over the weekend. He was all over the Sunday shows, doing interviews, wearing shirts, saying Roger Stone did nothing wrong or something like that. Have you ever seen anyone so arrogant taunting a special counsel like this? I, this is insane it was to so me. Bizarre. I mean, you know, Tara, that's the other part that just makes my head hurt about all of this is just like what these people do. And I, I'm, I'm just wondering who these lawyers are that let them do it. Um 
you know, he just got arrested and has been charged with some very, very serious crimes. And those crimes, Mueller has basically indicated in the indictment, he is going to prove mainly through Roger Stone's own statements. Correct. So at that point, a good defense lawyer says, you know what? Shut up. Right. Go and hide under a rock until I tell you to come out. <laughs> until it's time to negotiate your until plea deal. <laughs> exactly. Whether you're going to do five years or 15 years until then, but you're going to jail though, buddy. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there is no good legal reason for him to be doing that because, you know, you in fact only have possible liability because you just never know what you might say. Um, and for a lawyer, you don't want to let your client get on national television because, you know, we've seen what that happens with yes. uh, some other people in this saga. So, you know, I think, <clears throat> um, you know, the consensus is that what he was trying to do is basically uh, plead his case to the person that he was hoping was watching, um, which is the president, because his one kind of get out of jail free card literally here is if Trump pardons him. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, you know, by going on TV, you know, Trump loves loyalty. He loves he, he hates flippers. And so when he says, I'll never testify against the president, you know, um, I think he's hoping that that will appeal to the man sure. in the office. Sure. Yeah. And even back, I think it was in December, Trump either said in an interview or at some point, I don't know if he tweeted it or said it in an interview, but he indicated that Roger Stone had guts and uh, Michael Cohen didn't because he was weak and he flipped. And um, But Roger Stone has you know remained steadfast and just like Manafort, Trump has mm -hmm. admiration for the, the worst of them, um, which tells you where his moral compass is. Um, and I, re I remember thinking it was really odd because Manafort did, you know, quote unquote flip and decided to cooperate. But then we found out he was lying the right. whole time. That's right. He, he screwed the pooch on his, own, right, yeah. on his own plea deal and was lying the whole time trying to manipulate that. Probably because he's more afraid of the Russian mafia than he is of um, our criminal justice system. That's and, you know, may maybe he has reason to be. But um, which that's a whole different thing that the, the Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, the aluminum magnate who uh, Paul Manafort was in bed with all these years. And he's the one who, who he gave the, the polling data to and all of that. Um, yeah. Our government just lifted sanctions on Deripaska's businesses it, it, quietly. That was on Sunday. I mean, it's unbelievable. That, that's a whole different conversation. But speaking of uh, being around unsavory people and why. You know, the narrative about if, if everything is so innocent, you know, Trump has been been rage tweeting all weekend about this because he knows Roger Stone's one of the closest guys to him. He can't call him a coffee boy. There's no no way he's getting around that. Um, and this is kind of another one of the closer the closest I think we've come to the collusion, the tangible collusion part of all of this. But then you also wonder, why is everybody lying? If there was an innocent explanation for all this, why all the lies? Well, you know. When you have a cast of characters that are like this, it, what do you expect? They, they wouldn't know the truth if it, if it shut, you know, kicked them in the ass. But that leads me to also the other story that kind of got buried because of the explosiveness of the stone stuff. The security clearance office <laughs> in the White House. Now, again, I wanted to bring this up with you because as an FBI agent, you've been through 
at the security clearance investigation. You understand the importance of uh, and the meaning of getting a security clearance. My husband is a federal law enforcement officer. He has security clearance, pretty high level, and it gets renewed every five years. There, apparently, there was some guy who was a Pentagon official. His name was Carl Klein, who was brought into the White House in 2017 into the personnel office. The security personnel offices were, office reviews people's security clearance applications. And it's, there's a step, there's a process, there's steps. And Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, was denied a security clearance initially. He was one of 30 people who were denied security clearances, but that denial was overruled by this guy, Carl Klein. And it was sent over to the CIA for, for higher level security clearance. There's different, there's different tiers of security clearance. Asha, can you believe this? 30 people were deemed unworthy of security clearances, which means, you know, personal finance problems, sketchy connections. They can't explain some things. They're not worthy of having security clearance and access to our intelligence information. But this guy, Carl Klein, comes in instructed by, I'm assuming the president, to say, no, I don't care what the, what the security, the intelligence community says. We want these people to have security clearance, including Jared Kushner. What say you about that? It's an outrage, and it is a national security threat. And I mean, this is a national security concern. So, uh, you know, the FBI typically does the background checks for um, people looking to get security clearances. I don't know if they did in this case, but um, having you know been trained in, in background checks, they give you a mnemonic at Quantico to uh, guide you when you do these background check interviews, and it's Carla F. Bad. And that stands for character, associates, reputation, loyalty, ability, finances, bias, alcohol, and drugs. Hmm. And so that's just to help keep you on track. And I mean, they're they're open-ended questions, but you kind of go. And then if something kind of feels hinky to you, you go down the... the road of, of right. asking follow-up questions, That's right? It's a bit more serious than Roy G. Biv, which we learned yeah. in like third grade <laughs> to remember is. the colors of the rainbow. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, it's pretty, it's so, pretty serious. You know, the um, uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, um, I remember I, I wrote a piece on Jared and his uh, security, his inability to fill out forms. Because right. I just, let's, let's not forget that he's now had to update his SF-86, which is the long form that you fill out, I think, like, two or three times at, at this least. point. At least. That's right. Yes. To account for foreign contacts, which he originally did not disclose. And just so you know, Tara, um, you know, I don't know about, you know, your husband's experience. In my experience, th- there was no leeway given for not disclosing things. Um, I forgot to put on my SF-86 when I applied to the FBI a traffic ticket I got when I was like 19 and going home to college. I, I mean, I don't even, it, it, and, right. you know, and they called me yeah. and they were, why did you not put this? So, I mean, I'm like 27 at this point, you know? And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, honestly, like I, I didn't know that that ended up like, I thought it was, I remembered it as a warning or whatever it was. Um, I mean, I really didn't remember. And, you know, they grilled me to find out if I was trying to deceive them and, mm-hmm. you know, went back and thought about it. I thought my entire FBI career was going to be <laughs> tanked because of this. So this is kind of the standard that they're holding you to, which is that, 
a lack of candor is ipso facto grounds for not granting you any kind of clearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Office of Director of National Intelligence puts out a report about security clearances and the different agencies and which ones have, you know, denied them and, and the percentages. And what it says, interestingly, is uh, financial issues and foreign influence are the two biggest reasons why security clearances get delayed and denied. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> and, we and, know- and the reason for that, I'm assuming would be that those, if you are, let's say you're, you're a compulsive gambler and you're in debt um, and you have some friends that are in the, I don't know, Russian mob and they, you, you know, you go out and you play a poker game uh, where you're not supposed to, that it was rife for blackmail. <laughs> or compromise. Right. That's why financial, um, financial, um, uh, whatever the, uh, what do you want to say? Financial negligence yeah. and, and foreign contacts are the most problematic because they're the most easily, uh, led down the path of, of blackmail Correct. or treason or God knows what. Exactly. So you've hit the nail on the head. So the reason that you get security clearances is because you need certain clearances to access certain kinds of information. So you have secret level clearances, you have top secret level clearances, then you have something called top secret slash secret compartmentalized information, which is like the highest level clearance. Um, Like you literally have to go into a room to be able to look at the stuff and then you can't, you like leave all your cell phones outside. Right. It's called Uh, a skiff. So this is, very sensitive intelligence that is coming through uh, sources and methods that sometimes people don't even know that we have. Okay, <laughs> like that's how uh, sensitive it is. Except um, when WikiLeaks gets information from uh, traitors like uh, exactly uh, what's exactly. his name, um, who was Ed Ed Snowden. Ed Snowden. That's yep. where WikiLeaks was was basically put into the mainstream. Was when exactly. Ed Snowden decided to steal our sources and methods and information from the NSA, and gave it to WikiLeaks, them. and they. They just they distributed it. So that's back to WikiLeaks. But go ahead. Yeah. So you're basic. And by the way, uh, just to, from what I understand, Jared Kushner not only got a top secret clearance, he got a top secret secret compartmentalized information clearance, TSSCI, which is incredibly sensitive. And I think that they, I think they they won't confirm or deny if he got it. There okay. was still question, that's but he, that's what he was right. Going that's what they wanted him to have. And in the just so people understand this, the president can overrule all of this and give and, and share right. information with whomever he damn well pleases, whether it's his son-in-law or Russians Vladimir in the Putin. Oval Office. I mean, he could he could literally walk over to he could call Vladimir Putin and give him. Right. That's right. Which is scary but, in and of itself. But go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, so, um, but you know, you're absolutely right. So the reason that there we, you know, we go through these intensive background checks is you want to make sure that someone is not vulnerable to be exploited. And it's not just compromised. It's, it's things that you may meet. Now I have flipped people. That's what I, you know, when you do counterintelligence stuff, that's what I did. I did it here for people who are from or work for other countries. And so what you are doing is assessing, you know, where is their Achilles heel? What can I offer them that will that will uh, be kind of their price? 
um, mm-hmm. basically to commit treason. I mean, that's a, you know, and so when you have somebody who's hugely in debt, you know, or someone who isn't loyal to the United States and, you know, uh, is an adherent to certain kind of philosophy for or, or um, uh, ideology that can be a way in, um, you know, uh, alcohol and drugs. I mean, that kind of stuff, depending on who the person is. But that's why when you have foreign influence and particularly financial issues, where either debt um, can be both, uh, you know, you can, there can be incentives and there can be coercion, like the uh, you know, example you described, Tara. Mm-hmm. And it can really place people in difficult um Position and then they they could be end up beholden to another power where they are then passing the secrets that they have access to, to that foreign power or to you know I I mean whatever you name right. the name entity it. that is right. you know against our interests we want people who we know are rock solid. Um, Jared Kushner it seems was not determined to be a rock solid person. And that is why this is a problem, because that determination, which was made by, I believe, career officials who do this all the time, yes. uh, was overruled. It's been reported that when his application went from made it up the ladder, up the chain and ended up over at the CIA because they, uh, they assessed, like freaked out. <laughs> yeah, they, they freaked out. They said they were like, how the hell did he get over here? Like, how did this even get this far? Because they know how compromised Jared Kushner is. He is incredibly in debt, his, his, his family business. They have a property that's underwater, the 666 Fifth Avenue property they've been trying to unload for years. It's billions of dollars in debt that they cannot get rid of. And they've approached the Qataris, the Saudis, uh, the Chinese, all kinds of wonderful folks that have money um, to try to bail them out of this property. And no, no one has... Um, has has uh, taken up the offer yet all all of this is that going we know on, of. that we that's correct that we know of all this while he is a, t- a senior official in the white house with top secret security clearance i mean i did a whole podcast on this and jared kushner's relationship with the saudis and the saudi crown prince and how he was reading the president's presidential daily briefings which are of the highest security I mean, you have to have the highest level security supposed to supposed to be anyway to read those things. And Jared Kushner was reading them on a daily basis. And then, you know, all of a sudden, some some things were going on in Saudi Arabia where the crown prince started jailing his potential uh, rivals and businessmen um, shortly after Jared Kushner took a secret trip over there and chatted with him. Sounds awfully fishy to me. Was he sharing information that he was reading in the presidential daily briefing with the Saudi crown uh, royal uh, MBS? I don't know, but just the fact that that was even a possibility is yeah. awful. So who, what, what the hell else is he sharing and with whom and for what purpose? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, look, you know, let's the, the, as you mentioned, the president is the ultimate classification authority, and there was a counterintelligence investigation opened on him. On him. So that's, <laughs> that's where we are. That's and that's <laughs> where we are, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Have a nice Sunday. I you know. know. Asha, oh my gosh. Well, uh, we're going to end on that note because um, that is literally where we are. Um, It's always a pleasure to have you. I appreciate it. And you're a wealth of knowledge. And it's always fun to talk to you. And for people that want to follow Asha on Twitter, she has a great Twitter feed. And whenever it becomes too much, just check out her kitten posts. She loves cats (laughs) just like me. We bonded over that last time. And you have amazing 
cat posts. They're so cute. Last week I was saying to people, follow Josh Campbell, not only for his expertise in this area, but also his dog. He loves corgis and he's got the cutest dog ever. And he does, he has all kinds of really cute pictures with them. So, so Asha, tell people how they can follow you. I am at, at Asha Rangappa underscore. On Twitter. Are you on Instagram too, or just Twitter? I am at Asha.Rangappa on Instagram, but I don't think I've posted anything in like four months. <laughs> you got to get with Twitter, with Instagram, I, can't, man. I, can't. I was like, I got to pick my social media I outlet. Like, I'm old. Like, I can't, I can't do <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. I know. I know. But no, but she's great on Twitter. Um, Thank you, Asha. I I appreciate you. And you, me and Josh all need to get together next time. We're all in D.C. or all in New York. And this way we can talk about this stuff and then we can drink to drink to get our sorrows to to mellow us out. (laughs) That would be awesome. Thank you so much, Tara. Thanks, Asha. Okay, take care. You've heard plenty of stories about drug cartels, right? They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard me. The Mennonites. 99% of them are kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. Starting January 23rd on Wednesdays. 10-9 Central, WGN America premieres the new TV series, Pure, based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head, and the good pastor, along with his wife, will do some very bad things all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as... Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. Get Hooked on Pure. Series premiere Wednesdays at 10, 9 central, starting January 23rd, only on WGN America. WGN America is available on Direct TV, Channel 307, Dish Channel 239, or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. That's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. I know it was a lot of information, but I hope that it put the the Mueller investigation and what's going on in perspective. I hope you learned some things. Um, tweet at me. Let me know at honestly underscore Tara on Twitter or at my personal Twitter account at Tara Setmayer or on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Love to hear from you. Questions, comments, anything like that. I will certainly tweet you back if I see it. But um I appreciate hearing from everyone and uh, stay warm this week. We have like a polar vortex, some kind of crazy thing coming through. 75% of the country is going to be below zero at some point where I just was last week in Fargo. They're talking wind chills of negative 60 degrees. Holy shit. So stay warm. Uh, Don't go outside unless you're somewhere where it's warm and not sub zero weather. Um, I'll see you next week. (laughs) 